turn in your Bibles to the Psalms, where we continue our study in the entire book of Psalms, with Psalm 27. And in Psalm 27, we're going to be confronted with a singular desire of David. One thing, if you had one thing that you wanted more than anything else, how many different fiction stories have some concept or idea of having your wishes granted? Not three wishes from a genie, but if you could have one wish granted to you, what would be that one thing? That's the question that our psalm wants to answer. I'm going to suggest boldly, provocatively, that I'm going to tell you what you should want the most. Isn't that interesting? A lot of times you go around life, people don't want to be too pushy and tell you how to live your life. Preaching is fundamentally me telling you how to live your life from God's word, not because of my intellect or wisdom. But God himself has spoken through his word to tell you the thing that you need the most, no matter what you're going through, is God himself. And this is precisely what we see so clearly in Psalm 27, maybe more clearly in Psalm 27 than almost anywhere else in all of Scripture. This is the one prayer that all under other prayers should fall underneath of. If you had one prayer request, what would it be today? Well, the answer of Psalm 27 should be, whatever your prayer is, it should be that it helps you with the one thing that Psalm 27 cares the most about, which is God himself. What is the one thing that our church should focus on, center ourselves and our gatherings around? There's just one necessary primary thing for a church. What's the one thing that determines and defines heaven and hell for your soul? That's what today's sermon's about. I think it's kind of important. Like the most important. You would be helped to follow along in God's word as I read Psalm 27 and see the singular thing that David wants more than anything else. No matter how bad things get in this world, his prayer is still this one thing. So follow along as I read Psalm 27, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent 
He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The grass will wither. The flowers will fade. But the word of our Lord will endure forever. Amen. I want to sum up today's message on the basis of Psalm 27 with one sentence. One big idea. God's beautiful face. It is the one thing that you need the most. And it's the thing that God provides in Jesus Christ. God's beautiful face. It is the one thing you need the most. And it is exactly the thing that God provides in and through Jesus Christ. I want to unpack that statement. I want to argue my case that this is what Psalm 27 is about. And I want to preach to you. I want to tell you, this is in fact what you need more than anything else. God's beautiful face. So let's first just examine that first part of this sentence. God's beautiful face. That's the one thing you need the most. What do I need the most? God's beautiful face. Clearly, this is what David, the psalmist, is saying in verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after. And what is it? What's the one thing? It is dwelling in the house of the Lord all the days of his life so that he can gaze. The dwelling is the one thing for the purpose of gazing or inquiring, meditating, asking, and getting more from God and more specifically his beauty. See it also in verse 8. You have said, as in God has said, seek my face. And he says, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. So don't hide your face from me. And then again in verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So clearly, the one thing that David wants more than anything else from his heart is the beauty of of God's face. But what is this? What does he mean? 
If you're not used to reading the Bible or doing Christian theology, God does not have a face. At this point in salvation history, God has not appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. God is an invisible spirit. And even the one time in the Bible prior to David writing this psalm, when someone wanted to see God's face, he was told explicitly, you cannot see my face. So that's why I ask, what is this one thing? How do we make sense of David's request and his desire to see God's beautiful face when God does not have a face, he's an invisible spirit, or when Moses was told, you cannot see my face and live? Is David saying, I want to die. No. God is being communicated through analogy, face-to-face intimate relationship. It's the most personal way that you can interact with a human on the earth. And to use that image, God in his word has repeatedly said that the most intimate way he can be personally experienced is face-to-face. So Moses talked with God face-to-face like a man talks with his friend. So audibly, Moses had the most intimate relationship with God in all of the Old Testament. But visibly, he still couldn't see that face and live. There's a distinction in the Old Testament between seeing visibly God's face and hearing God's voice face to face. Which shows us that Moses' face to face encounter is more about personal closeness than it is the literal thing itself. So what's the one thing? God's beautiful face. But what does it mean to see God's beautiful face? It is to find ultimate joy and delight in God himself. Supreme joy. Supreme joy in just God. Not the things that he can give, not the blessings that flow out from a relationship with him, but God, a close, personal intimate relationship with the God who made you. It's the one thing that you can never get enough of. It's the one thing that you need the most, being face to face with God. One of the most helpful images about this idea is thinking about a different analogy or image, and it would be that of a cup, a spatial image. So imagine your body, your heart, it's like the vessel of a cup. And you want more of God's beauty to fill up like being poured into that cup of water. And so I want you to imagine that you're thirsty. And the more that you see of God, the more thirsty you get. But at the same time, you're satisfied. And one theologian said it this way. It's as if the cup is filled to the top. But every time that more water comes, the cup expands at the very same time. So that you always want more, but you're always satisfied with what you have. And that, for all of eternities, is your heart expanding for all of eternity. More of God's beauty, more satisfaction, and more thirst forever and ever. I think that's what's happening in this psalm. David is longing with his heart to be filled with the beauty of God. And that's the one thing. Really, though? I just would like for a moment for me to make sure you understand that this is not just David's desire in Psalm 27. 
but that I can say emphatically, this is the one thing that you need. Because the rest of scripture and the Lord Jesus himself confirms this. You heard it read for us earlier in Mary and Martha's story, did you not? As Emily came up and told us, there's two women. One of them is showing us active obedience and one of us is showing more contemplative kind of passive obedience, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary is commended. Martha is rebuked. Two good things, but one of them is better. How many times do you choose a good thing at the expense of the best thing? Two very important responsibilities, and Jesus emphatically says in Luke 10, Mary chose the more important, better portion. Of the two parts of life, there's a quiet, contemplative, sitting, gazing. You're doing nothing but just sitting, gazing, soaking it in. And the other thing in life is busy, active. Both are good. Jesus isn't saying, Martha, that was bad. You should not care about serving. He said, Mary chose the better portion, the one thing that is necessary. And so Jesus says that adoring him, dwelling with him in his presence, wanting to be close to him and prioritizing him over everything else is essential for following him. You all been on an airplane recently and heard the flight attendant say, now adults, if you are traveling with young children, you need to first put on your mask and then the mask of your children. The flight attendant's not saying that put on your mask because you're more important than the child. You will be of no earthly good if you do not first put on Christ in your eyes, gazing at him day after day, night after night, then you will be the most earthly good to those around you. Do you see the idea? It has been often said and more often believed that I will do the most earthly good by being preoccupied with earthly needs. Being heavenly minded is the only way to be earthly good. It is always that way and Jesus is telling us that from Luke chapter 10. So dwell in God's presence and prioritize meditating and contemplating and gazing the beauty of God. For in fact, beholding the beauty of God in the face of Christ is how you became a Christian. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 4, 5, and 6 says that the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God who is the image of God. And for we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. And God who said, let there be light shining out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That passage I just read for you is a great, simple illustration of becoming a Christian. Non-Christian people aren't people that behold the beauty of of Jesus Christ. You could believe that he exists. You could believe that he died on the cross, but that is not sufficient to become a true, born-again, new-heart Christian. A Christian is someone that sees the cross of Jesus Christ, believes that it was historically true and accurate, believes that God became man, and died for sins, your sins, and you're captivated by that. 
You're not a Christian because you believe that God exists like the demons do and even shudder. You're a Christian because you repent knowing that this is the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen. Beholding the beauty of God's face is not just how you become a Christian. It's how you grow as a Christian. The passage right before the one I just read is saying that point. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we with unveiled faces, unlike Moses, we behold the glory of God and we're being transformed by that glory from one degree of glory to another, from the image of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So you could reread 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 today and see if you don't see that becoming a Christian and growing as a Christian is predicated or dependent upon your beholding. To the degree that you behold the glory of God will be to the degree that you grow more into his image. One of the most important principles of all of the Bible, in fact, is you become whatever you behold. And if you become more like Jesus, it's because you've been beholding Jesus. Perhaps some of you know a lot about the Bible and you've become more proud about your Bible knowledge and you've not become more lovely and loving because you're not beholding Christ who is the word of God made flesh. The whole reason the Bible exists in the first place. So whatever you most value and esteem, that will be the thing that drives your desires, your ambitions in life, and influence, not only your daily moment-by-moment decisions, but the major big decisions in your life. And if you want to grow and become more like Jesus, then behold. Behold the beauty of God in the face of Christ. For in fact, it is not just that you become a Christian by beholding the glory of Christ, or grow as a Christian because of beholding the glory of Christ, It is the final end goal that makes you a perfected saint in heaven. It is the thing you will do for all of eternity. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Child of God, yes, you're a Christian. Does sin still remain in you? Answer is yes. So have you become fully matured? No, but we will one day. When he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the Bible telling you that you become a Christian by beholding, you grow as a Christian by beholding, and for all of eternity you will be perfected by beholding. I think it's a pretty solid case that I can make from all of Scripture that David's desire here in Psalm 27 is in fact the desire you were made for. This is why you exist. This is the thing you need the most, no matter what is going on in your life. This should be the prayer request of all prayer requests. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I want to give one brief comment of application that I think is just Important to say, and I didn't know where else to insert it, so here we are. Brief parentheses, comment of application, practical kind of thing. If face-to-face communication or face-to-face relationships on earth are the most intimate way for God to express our relationship with him, that analogy is the like preeminent ultimate picture of communion with God. And what might this mean for how we live our lives here on this earth? Be like having a marriage on Zoom 
versus one that's face-to-face. That'd be like having virtual church instead of actually gathering. Letters are good. We can write to each other, text messages, emails, actually handwritten letters. Written words are good. Face-to-face is best. 2 John 1.12 says, I have much more to write to you, and I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. I mean, think about that. Apply that to your life. Writing letters, emailing, text messaging, it's, it's okay. It's a good way to communicate. Sometimes that's better than saying nothing at all. But it is best. The way God made us is to interact face-to-face. To see all of the data of the occasion of this encounter. Facial expressions, body language, tone. All the things that are missed in text messages. I cannot tell you, and this is again, this little parenthesis, very important practical application, how many pastoral issues I have seen come up in this church because people reverted to texting. Very important, serious matters should not be texted about. Talk to each other face to face the way God wants to be with you. That's why Christmas just happened. God wanted to communicate his love to you. How does he do it? Through the written word? Yes. It's good. Bible is good. You know what's better? Being with God face to face. That is the end goal of the gospel. So, end of parentheses. I think that you can maybe extrapolate all you want about the challenges we face during COVID when we're wearing masks and can't see each other's face or when we don't want to gather because of whatever reasons. These are obstacles. But friends, may this be true. Face-to-face Communication, interactions as humans is vital. It's important. We need to figure this out. We need wisdom. But more than anything, we need God's face. It's the one thing that you need, even more than face-to-face interactions with me. So why is that? Why does David say that this is the one thing? More than anything else, no matter what's going on. And I want you to see this from the psalm itself. Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And notice the occasion that he's talking about this one singular desire. Evildoers assail me because they want to eat my flesh. Adversaries and foes, they are the ones who actually stumble and fall. Even if enemies and armies encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though wars arise against me, yet I will be confident. Now, this is not only poetry, but David is a general of an army. So there could be both a poetic hyperbole and there could be a literal sense to what he's saying in these verses. He did deal with armies and was going into battle quite often throughout his life. So you can imagine that David is talking about like real issues in the world. War, evil, violence, external threats and attacks. And he's saying that this one thing in verses 4, 5, and 6, the seeking the face of God, dwelling in his presence, that thing will produce confidence in the face of external attacks. 
Do you have that kind of confidence? And do you believe that dwelling in God's presence will produce for you the kind of confidence where you can face any kind of external pressure that the world might throw at you? But that's not all. Verses 7 to 10 tell us of a different kind of pressure that David's facing, and yet he still thinks that seeking God's face will be the most important thing for him. Verses 7 to 10, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. And then key in on verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. We've saw in verses 1 through 3 that external attacks from foes, armies, wars, they do not shake his confidence because of his personal, intimate relationship with the God who created everything. Secondly, we see in verses 7 to 10 that even if, that's what I think is a better translation of the the Hebrew word that's translated for, the start of verse 10, for, or even if my father and my mother have forsaken me. Part of the reason why I think it's an even if is because David's father and his mother, as far as we know, did not forsake him. Unless you want to say this is like a euphemism, a saying about death. That even when your parents die and pass away and you don't have their support anymore. Or make it even worse Take it as the poetic expression that it more likely is. Even if the closest family members and friends that you have forsake you. So this is why I would want to say it this way. This psalm says external threats abound, but I'm confident because of the presence of the Lord. Internal turmoil exists, but I can get through it because of the presence of God and the beauty of his face. So David is not telling us this one heavenly thing and he is completely blinded by all of the real pain and suffering on the earth. He's not pie in the sky, I got my head in the clouds and all I care about is seeing the vision of God in the heavens and I could care less about your day-to-day turmoils. That is not Psalm 27 for a second. It is precisely because of the earthly turmoil both internally in his family or in his home or the worst case scenario of being forsaken by your spouse, your daughter, your son, your father, your mother, you think of the worst pain you could feel in your heart. David points at that. Then think of the worst pain that you could feel outside of your body. And David points at that. And he says, this one thing is all you really need. So I would suggest to you that seeking God's face is the one thing you need no matter how bad things get, internally, externally, troubles outside or inside, whether it's your foes or your family. Are you convinced yet? God's beautiful face is the one thing you need most, and it's exactly what God provides through Jesus Christ. So I want to conclude this message very practically helping you know how to get it. If this is the one thing you need the most, then I think it would be helpful if we looked to Psalm 27 to learn how to get it. 
And I got a single sentence that I want to unpack. It's kind of like three points, three little subpoints. okay? How do you get this one thing, the beauty of God's face? Continually ask and patiently gaze at the beauty of God in the face of Christ. Continually ask and patiently gaze at the beauty of God's face in the person of Christ. Why do I say continually and patiently? What do we get from Psalm 27 at the very end? A very practical word. Wait. My grandmother had a little saying. Do you all have grandmothers or family members that had little sayings that they'd say all the time? My grandmother would always say, what's worth having is worth waiting for. Grandma, can I have some candy? Well, you can wait. But I want it now, Grandma. Well, if it's worth having, it's worth waiting for. That would be the sort of in exchange that we'd have as we'd stay at Grandma's house in the summers. She'd say it all the time. This, my friends, is the most supreme, infinite, beautiful thing that could ever exist. It is the definition of beauty itself, so continually ask for it the way David does. I'm baffled at verse 8, the logic of it. Look at verse 8. You have said, seek my face. God has commanded David. David, I'd like you to seek my face. He's commanding him. This is, this is how you should orient your life. And David responds in verses 8 and 9. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? And then he asks, he, he requests, he petitions, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. Why would he have to ask? Didn't God command him that that's what he should do? You think, okay, God commanded it, so then just do it. God commanded it, and then he's asking repeatedly throughout this whole psalm, and really throughout all the psalms in some ways or another, he's asking, God, I want you. I think that that means that one of the experiences that you need to realize is that even when God commands something, and especially the best thing for you, you should ask for it. That's the means by which you're going to get it. So we sang, Be Thou My Vision. It's a prayer. It's a request. God, I want you to be my best thought by day or by night. We sing other songs where we say, Come, thou fount of every blessing, and tune my heart to sing thy grace. It's a prayer. And you're asking, God, I want you to change my heart and my life and reorient me. So I would suggest that, like David, you should continually ask every day. Make it the prayer. God, I want these other things. They're good. You should pray for them. It's not the only thing the Bible says to ask for. But this should be the one prayer that you begin your prayers with and end your prayers with. This should be the one prayer that even if you don't say it, because you don't have to say this every time, right? This is not prayer police church where we go around and be like, well, you didn't ask for that one thing. But it should be hopefully explicitly said and presumed by the way we pray that more than anything else, we want you, God, the glory of God in the face of Christ. So I would suggest praying and asking and see if even praying it doesn't start giving you it. It's weird. It's a mystery, actually. We're talking about not concrete things, but very abstract things. 
you will behold an invisible God by praying and asking, God, help me behold you. Before you open his word, say, God, help me see beautiful things, especially the beauty of Christ. Continually ask. Secondly, patiently gaze. Patiently. What's worth having is worth waiting for. Earlier this year, I was gathering with a group of pastors. We were in Wisconsin, just up the road, and we were at a retreat. And part of the retreat, Pastor Mark Dever, who was leading the conference, invited up a friend of his who's an astronaut, former astronaut. And he wanted to do Q&A with all these pastors to share what it was like to be in space. Have you ever met an astronaut before that's been in space? Before this experience, I had not. I was so fascinated by everything that he had to share. Everything was, wow, your life sounds amazing. Everything that he told us, every story was just jaw-dropping. Really? Wow. He helped build the International Space Station. Put that on your resume. Wouldn't that be awesome? My resume. Yeah, just, you know, helped build the space station. So he's telling us the stories about how he did it, the training he had to do. I mean, just the whole thing, right? And then he told us this tidbit. Someone asked a question like, so what would you do up there when you didn't have anything else to do? Like, did you ever have downtime? And he's like, well, there wasn't a lot of downtime. You don't go up to space and kind of play video games, you know? We got a job to do. But yeah, there was every once in a while some time off. And there's this compartment in the International Space Station, and it's the, the Russian side of it, and they have this big window. And when I had time off, I would sit at the window and I would stare. I would just gaze at the earth. Because I tell you, there is nothing more beautiful that you will see with your eyes than just the whole earth. And he said he would just sit and stare and gaze. All the time off that he had in the world. The one thing he wanted to do was just stare at something. I got to kind of believe that that's what I would have done too. Just hearing him share what it was like the first moment he got up into the atmosphere and looked down and you could see the whole globe. Breathtaking, right? Just imagining it is already starting to help me. Like, wow. And this is the moment of the Q&A that literally brought me to tears. At the very end, he said, if I could take it all back, I've spent my entire life in the Army, military, Air Force, whatever else he did. I mean, again, this dude's resume is like unbelievable. He said, if I could do it all over, I wish I would have spent more time in the church. Because pastors, what you are doing by giving people Jesus Christ is far greater and far more beautiful than anything I've ever done in my entire life and more important than anything I could ever do. And so in his retirement, he's been hanging around Mark Dever because he wants to give the rest of his waking hours and days to the church. That was humbling. I was so enthralled with the entire thing. And then this guy just flipped it on us and said, there's something more beautiful than gazing at the earth in space. It's Jesus Christ.
So friends, why do you think we want to center ourselves around the Bible at Embassy Church? Read the word, pray the word, sing the word, preach the word. Because it is in the word that the word has become flesh. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only father. And we come to church and we read the Bible and we study the Bible not to gain Bible knowledge and facts. Not so we can get out of hell, but so that we can see Christ because that is heaven. Jesus says, this is eternal life that you will intimately know me. That's John 17 verse 3. I'm committed to preaching through books of the Bible because I want each week to unfold for you the scriptures and how they point you to Christ. You might get a lot more out of some sermons, but hopefully the bare minimum you get every single week is a picture of Christ that helps you gaze at his beauty. We take the Lord's Supper every week because we want to feed by faith on Christ. We read the word, we pray the word, we preach the word, we sing the word, we see the word in the bread and the cup. We want to remember Christ not by just hearing, but by participating and being unified in face-to-face fellowship with one another. And ultimately, we choose to fit, sit at Jesus' feet like Mary so that we do not become Martha's anxiously distracted by many good things when there's one thing that's necessary. But that one thing produces confidence in the face of everything. And ultimately, we hope that through all of these different means of gathering and studying and pursuing discipleship in the local church, we will see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the very place of God's dwelling. He is the temple, tabernacle, that the Old Testament says was in a certain spot on the earth, heaven and earth, overlapping Jesus' incarnate flesh becomes the new tabernacle. Our psalm said that through the vision of Christ, through his protection and preservation, he'd place us on a rock. And what it means to be a Christian is to be placed on Jesus, the rock of our salvation, lifting us up so when the rains come down and the floods sweep across, we will not fall. Jesus is the light. Our psalm opens by saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He is the light that comes into the middle of our darkness. He is our refuge and stronghold and shelter in the day of trouble. And you can get him. You can have him. He is accessible. He is available to you. You can behold and gaze at the beauty of Jesus. And the real answer of the how question is that Jesus, the one who possessed infinite beauty, the definition and standard of all beauty, came down from heaven and he became ugly. He took on a human form. So does the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, the words that were prophesied several hundred years ago could be true of this beautiful person. He was despised and rejected by men. He was one from whom men would hide their faces. In other words, the beauty of God came into the world and took on flesh and he was despised. Humanity esteemed him not because of his piercings, being pierced for our transgressions, because he was crushed for our iniquities. 
And there on the cross, as he hung, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all, so much so that the song, Isaiah says that his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance. His form was such that it was beyond the form of a children of man. When Christ, who knew no sin, became sin and bore all of our sin on the cross, Isaiah says he had no form or majesty that we would want to look at him. No beauty that we would desire him. The beauty of God's face was shining, quite literally, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And both Jews and Greeks rejected the beauty and glory and brilliance of Christ. He was surrounded by an army and camped around him. They wanted to eat up his flesh, and they did. They breathed out violence against him, and they took his last breath. He hung on a cross, and he was forsaken by his father. David says in Psalm 27, even if I was forsaken by my father, you will let me in. But Jesus Christ was forsaken by his father and he was cast out. The beauty of heaven became the bane of earth as he was so bruised and bloody that he was buried in a tomb. So it is like so many truths in the Bible. We're met with a paradox, a mystery, a twist in the story. The most beautiful thing that you could ever lay your eyes on is Jesus Christ. The God-man who loved and served like no one has ever loved and served. Don't you read the Gospels and just admire the beauty by the way he carried himself? But that human being, every ounce of his beauty was snuffed out as he bore the darkness and the weight of sin on the cross so that God could take you in. Christ was forsaken by his Father so that you would be welcomed by his Father. And that for all of eternity, as I think the story with Thomas, as Jesus is risen from the dead, alive and well in his human body, but still, for some reason, maintains the scars in his hands, tells you and me that for all of eternity, the beauty of those scars will forever demonstrate the beauty of his love, his truth, his goodness. And when you see the fullness of Christ, not just the glowing face on the mountain, but the broken body on the cross and the resurrected and ascended Lord, then you'll become like him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come now in the name of Jesus and we pray that the Holy Spirit would reprioritize Jesus Christ in our heart and in our lives. Many people at this time of the year want to make resolutions, renewal commitments, and our prayer is that we would behold the beauty of God's face in the person of Christ. Every aspect of his beauty, from his incarnation to his perfect sinless life, to his bone-crushing, bone, bone crushing, 
sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing, death on a cross, burial to the dead, resurrection and ascension. Oh, Father, pour out your spirit upon us so that we would sing and shout and praise you for how beautiful you are. And may we see in the world around us, day after day and moment after moment, glimpses of your beauty in the creation that displays your handiwork and the infinite attributes that are expressed in all that you made. We pray, God, that even in our face-to-face interactions, the love that we share with each other, that we would see the beauty of Christ in the church. So I pray that your spirit will do a work that I cannot do by just saying these words, change and transform us because we see something beautiful. Not just believe that it exists, that it really happened, but that it is in fact beauty defined. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.